This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 13, recorded on August 15, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-host, Lionel Chow. Welcome, Lionel. Hi, Tim. And Jim Geller. Welcome back, Jim. Hi, Tim. All three of us are from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Today on TWIPO, our main topic is going to be uh, regarding epidemiology of childhood cancer, particularly a few papers that have come out recently regarding issues surrounding birth, such as uh, birth history, birth anomalies, obstetrical history, and birth order, as well as an article about the use of cell phones. And so that promises to be very exciting. Uh, We are also creating a little bit of a new format for our episodes. What we'd like to do is begin our podcasts with discussions about some papers that have come out recently that relate to previous episodes, and those we're not going to go into as much depth, but just mention them uh, for your interest, and we'll provide links to those on the Solving Kids Cancer website, which also reminds me that if you have questions or comments about today's podcast, even if you are listening to it a long time from now, please email us at twipo, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. We'd be happy to read your emails and discuss them during a future episode, and we've got a few we're going to talk about today at, uh, before we close out. So first order of business, then, is a couple of papers that got a lot of high press last week and the week before, uh, and they actually related to a couple different episodes we've done on TWIPO. Uh, the first one is, actually there's two that came out by the same group. Uh, the lead author is Carl June. Uh, one of them appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, first author David Porter, entitled Chimeric Antigen Receptor Modified T-Cells in Chronic Lymphoid Leukemia. That was just released on August 10th, and on the same day, a similar one came out uh, with a different uh, mix of, of authors. Uh, first author was Michael Kalos, K-A-L-O-S, entitled T-Cells with Chimeric Antigen Receptors Have Potent Anti-Tumor Effects and Can Establish Memory in patients with advanced leukemia, and that was in the journal called Science Translational Medicine. Again, we'll put a link to that. Uh, Both of these relate to episode number four, where we talked about the NYESO1 with Steven Rosenberg's group uh, regarding their manipulation of T-cells against patient antigens. And then also they relate to last episode, episode 12, where we talked about an anti-CD19 uh, bispecific T-cell engaging antibody. Uh, in that case, if you recall, the antibody brought the T-cell next to the leukemia cell by binding both the CD19 on the leukemia cell and uh, the CD3 molecule on the T-cell. Brought them together, the T-cells lysed the leukemia cells, and it had some great amazing results. And Dr. O'Brien talked to us about some uh, upcoming pediatric trial. And in these, uh, they don't relate to uh, pediatric diseases specifically, they're mainly looking at chronic lymphoid leukemia, which is uh, an adult leukemia, but they really had some dramatic results, and that's why they had such high-profile publications, and I thought we ought to mention them. The one in the New England Journal, 
Well, actually, both of these, um, again, use modified T cells, and they put in a single-chain antibody gene that's against the CD19, so against the same target we talk about with the bispecific antibodies. And this has been done in a lot of ways, and we had talked about the way the, the Rosenberg group did that against the NYESO1 gene and melanoma and synovial sarcoma in episode 4. But one of the things that they cited in these papers is that the clinical trials to date have been a little bit disappointing, even though they've gotten some responses with just putting in a T-cell uh, receptor against a specific target. And so what they had done in, in preclinical studies had shown it worked better was to not just have the uh, T-cell receptor, but have a good signaling, uh, internal signaling molecule attached to that uh, in the a co-stimulatory molecule. And in this case, they used the co-stimulatory domain from CD137, also known as 4-1BB. And so now you've got a chimeric receptor that's inserted into the T-cells, patient's own T-cells, that is targeted against a specific tumor antigen that has an internal domain that is normally a signal provided by a co-stimulatory molecule on normal T-cells. But now it's provided all in one, sort of a one-stop shop kind of construct. And they have started a clinical trial, and in the New England Journal paper talked about three patients that have been already enrolled, but I guess their results were so great out of one of those patients that they wanted to go ahead and report it because they did a pretty exhaustive immunologic analysis of that patient. Uh, and so this this is, a, again, a patient with CLL uh, that had been refractory to a number of other therapies like Rituxan, the anti-CD19 antibody, so they'd already tried targeting that uh, with an antibody with fludarabine and an anti-CD52 antibody, and they ended up giving this patient T-cells that they had transduced, so they gave them 3 times 10 to the 8th T-cells, 5% of which were transduced, and so if you calculate the number of transduced cells, it was only uh, 1.46 times 10 to the 5th per kilo, 146,000 per kilo, which for transplant and adoptive cell therapy is a pretty small number. Um, they split that into three daily infusions, and then they tracked this patient in, by, and on day 22, this patient developed grade 3 tumor lysis syndrome, and by day 28, there was no evidence of disease in the bone marrow. So it went from a hypercellular bone marrow with 40% blasts down to, less, down to undetectable, less than 1%. Uh, and this uh, result was sustained for greater than 10 months uh, as of the writing of this paper. So it was still sustained when they wrote it. Um, and they had very little toxicities. Most of the other toxicities were grade 1 or grade 2, except for one day of a grade 4 lymphopenia. So it seemed to be tolerated quite well. And they were able to measure these transduced or CAR cells uh, for at least six months in the patient. The downside, of course, this is CD19 they're targeting, and that's on normal B cells. And uh, normal B cells were basically absent from the patient's blood and bone marrow for at least the six months that they were measuring right. these these CAR cells. But the dramatic response was worthy of a New England Journal paper and worthy of lots of press releases um, last week. So we had patients calling us up or emailing us about you know this this kind of therapy. Uh, and the the paper in Science Translational Medicine was similar. Uh, some different aspects about how well how long these cells were maintained. Uh, were reported. So so that was pretty cool. Um, I, you know, another advance that a lot of people are asking about, and I think it, it's very much similar to what we had discussed in episode number four. Um, there were other two other related papers that came out recently that I thought we ought to mention. 
And one of them was in cancer immunology and immunotherapy that was released in May, on May 28th online in 2011. And this one talked specifically about neuroblastoma, so now we're bringing this field back to the pediatric realm. And they looked at three different antigens, MAGE A1, MAGE A3, and the NYESO1 that we had talked about in Episode 4. And they looked at neuroblastoma cells, and the cells expressed some of these, but not all. But they basically were able to upregulate expression on these by a drug treatment. So they used decitabine, uh, which is a demethylating agent, affects the DNA and gene expression profile, and they were able to markedly upregulate these antigens with this drug and then show that T cells could then kill, that were sensitized to these antigens could kill these drugs. Again, we'll put a link to this paper, or at least to the abstract, in our um, show notes on, online on the solvingkidscancer.org website. Uh, this suggests that one might be able to induce expression of these antigens and thus enable the use of these uh, chimeric antigen receptor transduced T cells uh, in neuroblastoma. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, this, this last paper was uh, in an, uh, a laboratory model for the disease, right? Not in people. This is correct, yeah. and this was not even in, in an animal model right. of, of the disease. Culture. This is mainly in cultures. They did use um, T cells from people uh, that they, that they um, to see if they could lice that were sensitized against um, these antigens and see it and show that they could lyse these cells better. So there was some translational component, but yeah. okay. certainly it's far from from clinical use, but it does right. open up an interesting avenue. And then the last one that recently came out that was published on August 2nd of this year was a review by Steven Rosenberg called Cell Transfer Immunotherapy for Metastatic Solid Tumor, What Clinicians Need to Know. This appeared in the journal Nature Reviews. Uh, this was an advanced online publication. He basically reviews some of their results and, and this field and the science behind the field and has a lot of nice graphs and drawings about how it how it works. And uh, for those who are interested, they may want to look this up uh, for some more details. And that's Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology, just in case um, people are looking right, for it. Right, Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology. It was... Uh, yeah, we don't have this. It's not in print yet, so I don't have the specific citation, but we'll put a link to the abstract at least. We Just a note, um, we try to put links on uh, either solvingkidscancer.org website or the nbglobe.com website, but we're not able to put links to the actual published articles until they appear in a you know open access format like PubMed Absolutely. Central. Yeah. So we'll try to, and they don't appear into there usually until a year later. So if these aren't journal articles that are open to everyone, but by virtue of being on an open access like PLOS One or others, then we can only put links to the abstract. But we'll try to go back uh, once journal articles become over a year old and replace those links uh, so that they can access the entire paper. So that brings us to any other comments about or questions about those oh, articles? <clears throat> Just uh, one quick comment on the third paper, uh, the use of the cytobine uh, to upregulate the uh, target proteins to for the immune system to react to. Uh, it, it, many of the, uh, of the audience may be aware that the cytobine has been used in children, um, not just in the lab. Uh, unfortunately, the doses that we were able to use in children, uh, we haven't always been able to demethylate um, all of the target uh, proteins that would be desired. So it's nice to see that all the immunological uh, concepts are coming to fruition with good responses and benefit of patients. 
but uh, there, there always is, are a few catches along the way, and it's important for families to discuss these things with, with their doctors if they're interested in immune-based therapies. certainly has come a long way, and it was great to see these articles in press and to see these responses being made, um, and hopefully there'll be less what-ifs or or but did you think of that uh, as this field uh, continues to mature? Yeah, that's a great point. And again, this is a laboratory finding, whether it's really going to work, right. he, whether it's going to upregulate in people and which ones, and whether even the upregulation is going to be sufficient to right. be targetable by these methods. Yeah, the study was initially designed in pediatrics to upregulate caspase 8, and in fact, to sensitize neuroblastoma to some of our novel therapies that are some of our actually routine chemotherapies and we had mixed effects uh, in that in that study uh, as far as its ability to do so. It does raise the whole field of epigenetic modulation as a therapeutic modality, though, uh, and there are another kinds of uh, other kinds of drugs coming right, down the yeah. pike to modify both DNA from methylation and other kinds of post-transcriptional modifications and HDAC inhibitors. We may want to do a whole couple of episodes sometime on on that field in general. Absolutely. So getting to our main topic, which is birth-related risks for childhood cancer and other kinds of risks, um, I'm going to turn this one over to Lionel, who's got a paper to talk about. Uh, thanks, Tim. So the paper um, that I'm going to talk about today was uh, came out online uh, in the journal Pediatrics uh, just a few days ago, last Monday, on August the 8th, that is, uh, because last Monday doesn't mean anything to our, our <laughs> listeners. Um, and the title of the paper is Birth Anomalies and Obstetric History as Risks for Childhood Tumors of the Central Nervous System, uh, with the first author of Sonia Partap. Um, the group that did this study is mainly based out of um, Stanford, um, at Stanford University, uh, as well as... Uh, no, it's just Stanford University. Okay, and so just a little bit of background on uh, brain tumors uh, for everybody in our audience. Um, roughly 3,500 brain tumors, primary brain tumors are diagnosed in children every year. Uh, the majority of these uh, tumors are gliomas, um, and the largest fraction among gliomas are the low-grade tumors. Uh, among high-grade tumors, medulloblastoma is the most common uh, diagnosis in children, and high-grade gliomas are the second most common. Uh, other types of tumors, which I'm just going to mention because they're going to be mentioned in the paper, include uh, primitive neuroectodermal tumor, which we also call PNET or PNETs, uh, ependymomas, and, and germ cell tumors. Um, so for the most part, the etiology, the cause of these tumors, uh, is unknown. We don't know um, uh, uh, what uh, causes these tumors in people to initiate. Um, and a lot of previous studies have been done, and, and uh, among environmental exposures, the only environmental exposure that has been um, causal, causally linked to brain tumors is ionizing radiation, previous exposure to ionizing radiation which, of course, the general population, for the most part, is not exposed to, um, but is an important exposure in our population of childhood cancer survivors in general. Um, among genetic predispositions to brain tumors, um, there are a number of uh, syndromes that are known to have, uh, in which patients have a genetic predisposition to uh, various types of brain tumors, but in general, these syndromes are extremely rare conditions, and so the total number of patients 
with these syndromes that make up our brain tumor population is, is, is quite small. Um, and some of these syndromes include tuberous sclerosis, neurofibromatosis type 1 and 2, von Hippel-Landau syndrome, Turcotte syndrome, and Lee-Falmany syndrome. Um, however, these authors uh, hypothesize that um, because these tumors are occurring in children, in some cases very young children, that uh, there, there may be other um, less well-defined genetic elements that uh, uh, give uh, patients a predisposition to coming down with uh, these types of tumors. And they hypothesize that um, they would be able to use maternal history for previous miscarriages and or the presence of congenital anomalies within patients to as a, as a proxy measure for the presence of some genetic uh, factors uh, that might be predisposing factors for brain tumors. So previous studies had actually looked at this question, but for the most part, they had been very small studies and uh, were unable to kind of reach any firm conclusions one way or the other. So what this group did was to take a population registry approach um, to see if they could increase their numbers and thus increase the power to, to, to detect uh, associations. And uh, being in California, they used the California uh, Cancer Registry um, and pulled out um, all of the patients within a fairly long time period, 1988 to 2006. Um, um, all, of the, all of the children less than 15 who were diagnosed with primary brain tumors during that period. And the key here was that they linked all of these uh, records to um, birth certificates uh, offered by the California Office of Vital Records. Um, so the design of the study is a retrospe retrospective case control study. Uh, from the same Office of Vital Records, they pulled out at least four control subjects for every case that they were able to identify. So it's a four to one case control study. Um, so, uh, just to get into the data now, um, between, as I said, the years of 1988 and 2006, they identified 4,560 new cases from the California Can Cancer Registry of uh, brain tumor patients less than 15 years of age. Um, and out of these uh, cases, they were able to match um, birth certificate data to 3,733 of them, which is a pretty good linkage rate, an 82% linkage rate. I think that's uh, pretty impressive, actually. Um, and so therefore, to, they, 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 they accumulated um, 14,932 control subjects um, to compare to. Now, first of all, just a little bit of a word on their cases. So out of the 3,733 cases, um, if you look at the type of tumors that these children had, uh, it was quite representative of what we know to be the incidence of tumors in the uh, general population. So, for example, 57% of the tumors that they pulled out were gliomas, with 65% of those being low-grade and 35 being high-grade. Um, 24% of uh, the tumors were embryonal tumors, uh, which are the medulloblastomas and the peanuts. 8% were ependymomas and 5% were germ cell tumors. So these are roughly numbers that are consistent with uh, the, uh, the the types of tumors that children get in these in these age groups. Um, so then they started to do their comparison, uh, pull out the data from the birth certificates. Now, I, I've never tried to do one of these studies, and I don't know what's recorded in birth certificate data in California, but they got a lot of information from birth certificate data in California. So they pulled out um, 
maternal pregnancy histories, uh, looking for one or more prior fetal losses um, in, in particular. So out of all of these patients, they were able to identify data from 3,083 mothers in the tumor group, uh, of which 468, or 8%, had one prior fetal loss, and 163, or 4.4%, had two or more uh, prior fetal losses. And there were, only, uh, there were only missing data on 11 of the mothers, which is quite remarkable. And then they had very similar numbers from the control group. They had uh, 12,000, over 12,000 uh, mothers in the control group. Once again, 8% of those had one prior fetal loss, and 4.4% had uh, exactly the same percentage, had uh, two or more prior fetal losses. So the populations uh, of the control are quite similar to the mothers. Um, what they found was that there was no increased risk to having a brain tumor if they looked at... Um, uh, prior losses as a whole, or uh, in other words, if they took all comers, all um, uh, mothers that had prior losses, one or, or two or however many, there was no increased risk of having a brain tumor. Um, so then they tried to, to parse this data out a little bit more. They looked at the gestational age um, at which the losses occurred in these, um, uh, in these prior loss cases. And they segregated them, they stratified them by losses that occurred prior to 20 weeks of gestation or greater than 20 weeks of gestation. So prior would obviously imply that there's something really severe going on? Prior would imply that either um, there are really early losses, so failure of implantation, which is something to do with probably placental conditions, uh, or a really... Uh, 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 severe chromosomal anomalies that cause the, the fetus to be spontaneously aborted, yes. Uh, so you're absolutely right. So later losses would imply that uh, um, at least a fair chunk of development was able to occur during the uh, during in utero, and uh, then something happened to, to um, trigger this loss. Okay. Yeah. So now for, this is where it's interesting, because what they found was that there was no association noted um, if they looked at those losses that occur prior to 20 weeks of gestation. However, if they looked at the population of mothers who had a history of two or more fetal losses occurring after 20 weeks of gestation, there was about a 2.5-fold increase in the child having um, a brain tumor. And uh, more strikingly, among the high-grade glioma group only, there was a 16-fold increase. Um, and uh, so these numbers are provocative, and so they did a multivariate analysis taking into account uh, various factors, including uh, birth weight, birth order, race, Hispanic ethnicity, and maternal age, and found that this association with um, two or more fetal losses greater than 20 weeks gestation still held. So there was still a three-fold increase for brain tumors and a 14-fold and a you know, odds ratio for um, high-grade glioma. Uh, now, the, the big caveat is that uh, with such a, even though they started from uh, or, you know, over 3,000 cases of, of tumors, um, the number of, of actual brain tumors and cases they're looking in this small group is it was 10 brain tumors and four high-grade gliomas. So that's the big caveat to, to these numbers. Even, but the numbers are statistically significant. Lionel, did they look at um, um, a factor five Leiden 
And the reason I ask the question is it's perhaps the most common cause of multiple late gestational uh, uh, pregnancy losses and uh, in, in mothers. And it's a procoagulant state, and we know that hyperglioma patients actually are quite prone to clot. We think it's a chicken versus the egg situation where the tumor creates a cytokine environment, and these uh, patients who have hyperglioma's are more prone to clot but it, because of potentially the tumor, but it's also possible that a procoagulant environment predisposes for the development of the tumor, and this is a true, true and sort of semi-related uh, finding, meaning it may not be development of, of a fetus inside the mother that's the issue. It could be an inherited procoagulant state that just hasn't gone diagnosed that's raising the possibility of, of tumor development. Right. I mean, that's obviously that's a very good point, and um, they did not uh, comment on that, nor did they obviously report on it. I think the limitation being that uh, that was a type of medical information that they couldn't actually uh, yeah. pull out from the type of records they were looking at. It would be interesting to know, and uh, I don't know that it's been, I, I don't know it off the top of my head, whether um, in the hyperglioma population, people have looked for factor V Leiden um, prevalence. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that either. That's a good that, point. That might be an answer to what's going on here. Mm -hmm. I, not to take away from all the findings they have here, but it's a confounding factor. Right. I mean, you're bringing up mechanism that might explain Correct. these. Correct. And I mean, the other obvious big category of mechanism would be do any of the known genetic pathways that are disrupted in these kinds of brain tumors, are they involved in development of the fetus? And if so, at what stage of the development of the fetus could that be? Ex could those explain some of these or not? So I'm assuming they. I didn't see in this paper any mention of that sort of. No, not at all. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, they hypothesize obviously that there are developmental uh, pathways that are playing a role here, but they don't uh, uh, speculate on which ones those might be. Right, and we know now many of the pathways that are involved in different kinds of brain tumors from a lot of the system system biology genetic studies that are ongoing and yeah. that have been recently published, so yes. one could start to maybe compare the two and see if there's anything that's strike is striking. Um, okay, so the second part of the paper, um, uh, so that, as I mentioned, uh, they looked at maternal history to look at these prior losses, but then they also looked um, uh, within the birth record, the, the birth certificate records, of course, uh, at the any record of birth defects in the child um, uh, itself. And uh, what they found was that within uh, the population of cases, the patients with brain tumors, uh, that 1.2% or 45 of them um, had a recorded birth defect uh, on their birth certificate, whereas uh, in the control group it was 0.6% or 90 of them. Um, and uh, that gave an odds ratio of uh, two-fold increase um, for developing a brain tumor with the presence of a birth defect. Um, and specifically, when they looked at different types of uh, cancers, they found that medulloblastoma had a three-fold increase um, if a birth defect was present, P-nets a 3.6-fold, and germ cell tumors a 6.4-fold increase. And these uh, uh, associations also held true in the multivariate analysis. Um, another interesting thing was that there was a particular association within the younger age group uh, with these associations. So for, for those patients that were diagnosed with a congenital anomaly prior to two years of age, they had uh, a much more significantly elevated risk of a brain tumor. And 
Similarly, children diagnosed with an anomaly of uh, an anomaly at birth were threefold more likely to have a brain tumor prior to uh, one year of age. Um, so the other interesting thing about these is that uh, in this particular group of tumors, uh, these are all tumors that occur uh, more frequently in the midline, and other people have published that um, there is an association of, of midline birth defects with the occurrence of uh, these types of tumors as well. So that may be um, you know, circling back to the developmental pathways um, uh, that are occurring, that are, that are forming these structures in the midline. So did they talk about which, were there any specific kinds of birth defects that stood out? And if we, you know, if you have a, a baby with such a birth defect, do we then need to start watching them more carefully for this kind of brain tumor? Right, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, I think that would have been really interesting information. That was not information that they looked at in their study alone. It was um, information that they talked about uh, with respect to other papers that have been published. So, for example, uh, there was an association that has previously been described an association of cleft uh, palate, cleft lip, with, um, if I'm not mistaken, medulloblastomas, um, and and some other studies like that. But they did not study that in their cohort of patients. No. And you also have to think, well, okay, sixfold or fourteenfold above background is still extremely rare and there's way 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 many more patients with these kinds of more common birth absolutely that don't get brain tumors so absolutely i mean i think that's that that's my take-home message from this is that uh it's really important for our listeners to understand that um uh, even with these um you know fold risks uh that that that, that i threw around uh that the overall risk uh for patients with any kind of birth defect or for mothers who have had multiple uh pregnancy losses is still extremely low given the rarity of the situ of, of brain tumors in general in the, in the general population I think that's the most important take-home message. Um, but yeah. I suspect that, you know, this, this uh, paper is going to engender um, uh, a number of uh, other studies in, in different populations to try to pin down whether or not uh, uh, this holds true, not just in California, but in other parts of the world. Um, and it may also spur some genome-wide association studies to pin down what factors are associated here. Yeah, I think, I think for the audience, uh, Tim pointed out a good point that this, 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 this study doesn't... Uh, change what we do, nor yeah. should I think it change the, the, the public panic level uh, about what um, their child or um, if the data was strong enough, we'd be recommending MRI surveillance for certain groups, and that's right. not what's happening No, here. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, my, my take-home messages were two. Number one is uh, you've touched on that, your, your, the developmental aspects of this and the biological insights and mechanism of tumor development that we could potentially learn uh, could ultimately uh, certainly help us in understanding the disease and then understanding how to treat it. Um, and then the second thing is comes back to the potential confounding factor of the, the clotting system, and that could have a patient-related um, uh, important impact if we find that uh, children with brain tumors have higher clotting systems. That's a separate, uh, perhaps less sexy finding, but it's important nonetheless and worth us maybe looking into a little bit more. Well, the other thing I learned is how much information is on the birth certificate in California. <laughs> that I, was amazing. You know, it's really amazing. <laughs> but it also enables people to do these kinds of studies with good, you know, data in the registry because, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. only as good as the input, but it's not something they have to collect or search through, you know, to find. It's already in there in, in these databases, and that's right. impressive. And, and just regarding that, I should mention that one thing that they do point out in, you know, when they talk about the study limitations is that 
uh, it's not always clear who is filling in these blanks on the birth certificate. So it may not be uh, the, the, a trained medical personnel who is who is actually recording all this information. They may be just be transcribing information from um, you know from notes or whatever. So so there is some limitation to the um, veracity of the every bit of information that's recorded on these certificates. So I'm not going to go into as much detail in the other two papers we picked that are uh, related to this, but um, one of them is quite interesting, uh, is a nice sort of adjunctive paper, and it's entitled Birth Order and Risk of Childhood Cancer, a Pooled Analysis from Five U.S. States. So this was published in the International Journal of Cancer. Uh, it's volume 128, page 2709, this year, 2011. And essentially, they cited the fact that people have looked at and in other studies previously that birth order may change your risk of cancer, which is quite interesting. And the idea here, I think, is that uh, if you're the firstborn, your environment is quite different than if you're the fourth or fifthborn in the household. If you're the fourth or fifthborn, you've, uh, you've got older siblings, they're bringing home viruses, you may be exposed to many more infections. Also, you might have a different in utero level of exposure to different hormones because Things are going on differently during your pregnancy as a fourth-born or a fifth-born than they were in the first-born. And um, there's also, and one of those things they talk about, which is microchimerism, which is the fact that uh, there are a few cells usually from a given fetus that circulates in mom's bloodstream, and the next fetus may be exposed to not only mom's cells but the previous fetus cells, which is kind of an interesting concept. Yeah. And so there, there are differences depending on your birth order. So... One of the things they said is a lot of studies have been done, and they're very controversial. Some show that birth order matters. Some show that it doesn't. Some show that it you know, makes it go up. Some that it makes it go down. So they, they took data from five different studies and pooled all the data. And now the data are not just from California, as our previous study was, but also Minnesota, New York, Texas, and Washington. And they accumulated a total of 17,672 cases. And they also had uh, 57,966 control cases in this study. And basically they looked at what the risk is of having a childhood cancer uh, and does that relate at all to your birth order. And the, the money figure in this paper, although um, listeners can't see it, is figure one. Uh, they have a lot of tables here. They talk about their patient population and they, they list a lot of different kinds of cancer. But in this table one, or this figure one, if people can can uh, call it up on their computer at some point in the future, shows that uh, it lists, uh, it's a table, and on the bottom or the x-axis, there's whether you're the firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, fourthborn, or beyond, and then the um, odds ratio or the risk of developing a cancer. And they're all normalized for each kind of cancer where if you're the firstborn, your odds ratio is a 1. So that's right. by definition. And so everything's relative to that. So if you have an older brother or sister, what's your risk of getting a childhood cancer compared to that firstborn? And interestingly, as you get uh, higher and higher in the birth order, so second, third, fourth, the risk for all childhood cancer seems to drop. So it drops to, uh, it almost drops, you know, 15, almost 20, per, um, well, it's not a percentage, I guess, but it, the relative risk, instead of being 1, is now uh, 0.85 or so on average altogether. And 
it because it's a trend and it continues to increase with each subsequent birth it makes you makes it really believable that it's not just like one data point that's a fluke and uh, then they separate it out in that figure amongst other cancers and show that there's even more dramatic drop in brain tumors, so it ties it back to what you were just talking about. Also, neuroblastoma and Wilms tumor are a couple others that stand out, and they, they cite a few others like bilateral retinoblastoma, but not unilateral, um, rhabdomyosarcoma, um, and suggest that you know there is a whole s subtype of, of tumors that seem to the risk seems to drop as you get in a higher birth order. Um, in contrast, they found that the most common type of, of childhood cancer, that is ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, did not really have any change relative to birth order. And they found that in that the rare, a couple rarer types of leukemia, such as AML, acute myeloid leukemia, and some of the chronic myelodysplastic syndromes, uh, actually increased in with risk in birth order. Um, and the AML seemed to increase as much as the others decreased, although the error bars are quite wide for that, so it's less clear that that's, that's a real finding. So, you know, they tried to control. One of the things that popped in my mind, well, uh, women who have given multiple births are going to be tend to be older, you know, by the time you give your fourth or fifth right. child. So could this be more of a in utero obstetrical thing, just like you were talking about? But they say they controlled for that, actually, so... So that doesn't seem to be one of the issues here. You know, maybe I'm I'm simple-minded, but I, one question I have, Tim, is, you know, I when my wife said we're ready for number three, I I paused. Uh, she won the the, the battle, <laughs> to say the least. But boy, if I if I were facing the challenges that some of the families that we care for face in caring for a child with cancer, you wonder how many of them are, you know, not always eager to add to their family at the moment in time and sometimes they don't they, they eventually don't add to their family and you would think that there would be a trend to those who haven't had to face cancer in their family to be less have less an impact or less um, what's the word I'm finding um, I'm, I'm searching for um, would be less inclined to, to worry about that issue so if, if your family has never had cancer issues maybe you'd be more inclined to have a fourth child than if you had it came from a family with cancer issues, could they control for that? In this, in this they study? did not talk about that, um, and that's a, that's a good point. They didn't look at and said, okay, if you've already had a child with cancer, then what is the risk of subsequent uh, right. pregnancies uh, or children having cancer? I, I'm just wondering by having an index case early on, you're less likely to have a third and a fourth in that family. But if you don't have an index case early on, yeah. yeah. And, and one thing they do you, mention, you, you might go go more likely to have a fourth and a fifth. Child. They did mention yeah. that, yeah. They do so. mention that with regards to uh, the bilateral retinoblastomas, one, yeah. where um, they suspect that families who have a child with bi or some families, anyways, who have a child with bilateral retinoblastoma, which is an inherited condition, might choose to uh, uh, you know keep their family smaller or, or, or have alternative, you know, adopt or whatever. So. Uh, and if you think about it, what's the average age of uh, cancer diagnosis in children? Four, five, six. Many of these families probably have already had their second or third child by right. then. Yeah. And so it's not a matter of choosing. And also I think that childhood cancer is so rare in general, and this is a large study, a large number of, of uh, patients or cases, that uh, probably those kinds of issues you're talking about, whether a family chose not to have 
a child or not wouldn't have really impacted the numbers in this big kind of series, I don't think. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I uh, maybe I'm being uh, negative today a little bit, but I I think it'd be nice to know uh, how to how to account for parent and family planning behaviors in some of these metrics that we that we look at and study. And it, it may be, it may not be as so easy to do. Sure, and um, you know the other thing though is some of these leukemias rose in in incidence with. With order, yes. so it's not like everything across the board dropped, right? And it's not like the therefore non-significant one. Well, this is true, but th this is true. So it, it does make it a little bit difficult to uh, interpret, um, and, and that's one of the things that you know I came away from this paper thinking, well, how is this going to change anyone's, or should it change anyone's behavior? And what's what's the real interest of this finding? Um, I mean, to me. There was some biological interest because how what could this be? What could cause this if it's true? And you know they talked about uh, three different major possibilities: one that it was going that birth order is a marker of infectious exposures, and later-born children have more exposures because of their older siblings. Um, and they talked about not being able to control for factors that might have impacted the immune status of kids and uh, other household residents, and you know the breastfeeding history or a history of vaccinations or infectious disease, so they couldn't really address that one. The second one was about the hormonal exposure. You know, it's possible that firstborns have higher estrogen exposure, they talked about. That's been in the literature, and, and actually it's been measured that uh, umbilical cord samples have greater, higher levels of estrogen in first pregnancy compared to second or third. Um, and then their third was this microchimerism uh, theory that we talked about that they really had no data about whether that makes any difference or not. So from a biologic uh, and developmental standpoint, it's an interesting study to think about what the mechanism, but what about from a practical study, what should families do? And since some of these, um, well, I, I, don't, I don't know that there's a good answer of what, what you should do. Uh, I, well, you know, I, I, to be positive, I, I took uh, the paper and said, well, you know, we all get asked this question about our, you know, parents who've had to uh, take a child through cancer many the majority have have good endings some don't and um, many have uh, apprehension or anxiety about what what their future children might might be like and i think that this is somewhat reassuring that the risks for cancer may go down um, and it's just one more piece of the puzzle and if we can learn something biological again or developmental analogous to the first paper that'd be great but if anything, this is reassuring data on those risks as parents consider their family planning going forward sure, as well. Sure, absolutely. I think we're going to wrap it up with that. Um, actually, we can't wrap oh, I did entice people at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> the emails. Yeah, it's, the conversation is getting a little long, but um, not just the emails, but the mobile phone. So there was one other paper that drew my attention this week uh, up, that had to do with cause of cancer and didn't have to do with birth other than the fact that just about everybody that you give birth to these days ends up using a mobile phone. Uh, <laughs> this was in a relatively high-profile journal, the Journal of the National Cancer Institute. It was entitled Mobile Phone Use in Brain Tumors in Children and Adolescents, a Multi-Center Case Contro Control Study, uh, volume 103, page 1 to 13, just released August 17th issue. Um, and this is a study out of Europe. 
where they did a multi-center case control study uh, from Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Switzerland. It included all children and adolescents aged 7 to 19 who had been diagnosed with a brain tumor between the years of 2004 and 2008. And they conducted interviews in person with 352 case patients, so 83% of those that they had identified, and 646 control subjects. So, um, And in the control subjects that they had identified, they got a participation rate of 71%, and their parents. And the control subjects were randomly selected from the population registries and matched for, by age, sex, and geographic region. Basically, they asked about mobile phone use, uh, and they tried to get the uh, phone operator records when available, and they looked at when the families or the children had gotten their first subscription to mobile phone usage and so forth. So they tried to really tease out whether in this pediatric population, so we're not talking about adults, we're not addressing at all whether mobile phone use increases your risk of cancer as an adult, but in these patients with brain tumors that were in the pediatric age, did their use of cell phones uh, seem to correlate at all with um, the development of their brain cancer. And they also looked at whether uh, tumors that were located um, on the side that they use their phone the most or, you know, areas that might have the most exposure to the, the electromagnetic radiation from the phones. Um, another good news story here, that there was no correlation. Uh, they didn't find uh, that uh, there was any statistically difference in phone usage in their patients with brain tumors compared to the non-brain tumor control group and nor was the risk higher in the areas of the brain that came closest in closest proximity to a handheld mobile phone so you know this has been a controversial field uh, there's been a lot of different studies that have gotten a lot of press attention particularly in adults I believe this is the first and maybe the only study looking at pediatric patients and again with this patient group the use of phones isn't going to have extended that many years compared to those of us who have been using them since they've been invented uh, but um, you know it still is at least a piece of potential good news that um, patients brain tumors uh, in this age group don't relate to their cell phone use. Correct. I, I think that's an important message that uh, for those families who have children with brain tumors um, they wonder and worry was they give their child the cell phone too early or it does not appear related. I don't think it tells us whether cell phones will increase the risk over your lifetime or over time, but it reassures us of uh, uh, of the pediatric um, patients that it's it's unrelated or appears to be. Granted, it's a small study, but uh, it was a well done study. Yeah, I, I I agree with you entirely, Jim. So I think it's important message for our population of patients to hear. Yeah, and just for our listeners, we did scrutinize the list of people and organizations that funded that study, and as far as we can tell, there were none on there related to the cell phone industry, and that has been one of the criticisms of some of the studies that there might be conflict of interest. I, we'll do one quick email, I think. So uh, this is from Jennifer, who is the mom to Zach. In episode 10, she states, it was stated that the new trial was first formulated in 2006, but it's just now coming to be open. So this is regarding Dr. Brian Weiss's trial with MIBG therapy and, uh, and, and transplant in neuroblastoma. And she wants to know, why so long? Uh, is this normal or typical? Is there a faster way? Is there a newer approach that is better? So I'll, you can each answer it from your own experience, but my answer is yes, this is typical, unfortunately. 
Um, I don't know of a faster way. There are lots of steps to go through, as we had talked about in that episode. And uh, his, you know, every trial is going to be different. Some are maybe a little bit easier if it's a straightforward study design or a drug that's very well studied in adults and all you're doing is extending the age range or if it's an FDA-approved drug versus an unapproved drug. So there's quite a variability, but this is pretty typical, don't you think? I think so, and, and Dr. Weiss has designed a very nice, um, involved um, a study for high-risk neuroblastoma that has many subcomponents, and some of those subcomponents uh, lend themselves to scrutiny. Uh, appropriate regulation going back and forth between companies, FDA, etc. So I think the more complicated a trial is, the more vulnerable it is to some of the back and forth that happens amongst the various interested parties. Is there a better way? I don't know. Um, I, I think with time, the regulatory um, groups are working to try and streamline some of their processes because they recognize the weakness. And um, uh, hopefully that will improve the, the, the timeline to study concept development, to study opening. Yeah, I, I don't have any personal experience to draw upon uh, um, for in this respect, but I can tell both of you. I can tell both of you right now that I'll be drawing upon your experiences as I get into this field. <laughs> well, brace yourself. Yes. is all we can say. <laughs> uh, she goes on to say, "I've seen the new melanoma model that is that a former patient started in combination with a software company. When and uh, when might we could we see this in pediatric patients?" She gives the. The link, it's http colon slash slash collabrx, so C-O-L-L-A-B-R-X dot com. And that website talks about a personalized medicine approach where you can put in, enter in a software, what your genetic mutation is in your tumor and so forth, and come up with a therapy. And I think this raises a whole specter of personalized medicine. So I'm going to just say that uh, this is interesting enough that We've decided we're going to devote another a whole podcast to this question in the future, so you're going to have to tune in later for the answer to that one. So I think that's it for this week, guys. Thanks for being here, Jim and Lionel. So the listeners, we're happy to read your emails and discuss your comments. If you send us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. And now you can follow us on Twitter at twipopodcast, T-W-I-P-O-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at twipopodcast. And we're going to send out a tweet whenever we have a new episode that's loaded up. And you can also sign up for automatic notification as we post new episodes if you register your email or any other your other mobile device with the RSS feed link that's on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Once again, thanks to Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, to Pat Buckley, our creative consultant, and to Scott Kennedy and John Lendon, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.